Please be seated and find your Bible. Open it to the book of James this morning, the book of James chapter 1. We're going to begin a four-week series together uh, on what I've entitled uh, Quest for Authentic Faith. And you read in chapter 1 about what authentic faith is, what it believes, how it behaves, what it looks like, what uh, is genuine faith, and also in contrast, what is insincere, pretentious faith. And James is out to expose those matters. So the first thing we want to ask as we begin this series, series is this, what is the litmus test of real faith? Because there is a lot of people who have a, a misguided ideas what faith is about. And uh, it begins with, uh, there's a belief that people just seem to think that faith is what a person thinks in his head. It, it's cognitive, it's right doctrine, it's affirming a, a tenet or a creed or uh, uh, something that uh, they could just endorse. But real faith is more than that. Here's what James is telling us. Faith is a verb, it's, it's an action, it's what we do, not simply what we have in our head. And one of the mega themes of this book is faith without works uh, is dead. And so we're going to see what real faith is, authentic faith, what it looks like, and these descriptive characteristics of authentic faith. But there's another misguided idea that uh, James clarifies in that religion is really a private matter. And, and we're to keep what we believe to ourselves. And, and why would we we would be quick to agree that faith is personal. Authentic faith can't remain private or hidden. First, because we shouldn't be ashamed of it. But secondly, because it always has a tangible expression of what God has done in our life. And here James declares, faith has measurable qualities. It's detectable. It's seeable. It's missional in nature. And really this third misguided idea is what I want to address this morning. How authentic faith is seen as the, how you and I respond to trials of life. First, he's relating to us that not all trials are bad. Not all of our difficulties and challenges and adversity we face are not to be dreaded and feared because we've come to learn that all of these heartaches and pain and problems and predicaments that, uh, that we are facing is not in any way because God has abandoned us, not because he doesn't love us or doesn't care about us, and so as we launch out here in chapter 1, let's agree to any of these misguided ideas that we may have had, these preconceived ideas of what faith is, let us default to God's Word and, and, and be teachable today uh, that God would open our heart, that we could learn the truths and promises of His Word. And so over these next four Sundays, we're going to see really what I'm calling four factors of determining authentic faith. And today we're going to talk about it begins with how you and I respond to trials. I was watching um, the golf tournament, uh, uh, Torrey Pines tournament that was on uh, Friday and Saturday has had opportunity. And the commentators made mention showing Roy McElroy, who is, uh, uh, I think he's second in the world right now. And, and if he beats, uh, if he wins the tournament, he'll go ahead of Bruce Brooks Kepka. But anyway, uh, they were talking about dealing, he was dealing with a lot of anxiety and, 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 and the pressure that was on him to be one of the top golfers in the world and what it meant. And, and uh, uh, so he had hired a sports psychologist and they mentioned a book that uh, this sports psychologist had been uh, using with Roy. It's called The Obstacle is the Way. And uh, then the subtitle, Turning Trials into Triumphs. 
Uh, the book's written in 2014 by a, a man by the name of Roger Holliday. But the essence of the book is this, what stands in the way becomes the way. And how we respond to obstacles is what defines us. And I'm listening to this on television. I'm saying, hey, you're stealing my stuff. That's right out of the book of James. It's exactly what we're talking about. How we respond to these things define us. And the obstacle is not to be dreaded. The obstacle is the way. And that's what James is telling us here. So please stand in honor of reading God's Word today. I'm going to read four verses And then we're going to take these verses apart. We're going to see what God has to say about how you and I can develop this authentic faith ongoingly and also, first, how we'll respond to trials. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Father, I pray today that you would help us understand this with eyes and ears of faith. Help us to see that we are not to behave like the world at large does when when difficult things come our way, that we're to, to, to seem hopeless because we have a God who's able. And we pray today that you would show yourself sufficient even in this service. Lord, I know we assembled this many people coming together where where a lot of folks dealing with a lot of complex problems. Trials of life are ever prevalent. But Lord, I pray this day that we'd leave with a sense of confidence that you're the God who comes to us and tells us we can cast all our care on you because you care for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I know one of the things that we could all agree on, the book of James is so loved. It's one of the most fascinating, intriguing books in all of the New Testament. It is loved primarily because we can get it, we can understand it. It's simple and it's straightforward. It's been called Christianity in shoe leather. And it's easy to understand the principles that are being taught, the mandate calling us to engage and flesh out what we believe, to be doers of the Word. And and so this is for us to learn from. It's it's what God is saying to us through his written word. First, we find who authored this book, as you would expect, it's James. But you read the New Testament, you'll find five different people that are mentioned who are named James. Three are noteworthy. One, uh, the apostle James, the son of Alphaeus. We know this much about him. He had a brother named Matthew, but we don't know much more than that about him. But we also know uh, of the one who is in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And James and John, you remember, were, were brothers. They were sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, and certainly a key person in the New Testament. But the author of this book, as you remember, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So both had the same mother in that Mary was the mother of both James and Jesus, but James would be born to Mary and Joseph, and of course, Jesus, the only begotten of the Father. So here's what we know about James, the author of this epistle. He was converted after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It seems Jesus' brothers 
uh, didn't believe in him, as we read in John's gospel. But James, indeed, was set apart uniquely after he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, after his encounter with the resurrected Christ. And he became one of the key leaders in the church, according to Acts chapter 12. So now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this humble and heralded leader of the church writes this epistle, and he begins with what's most important, and that is that you and I find authentic faith. And how do we respond first, he says, to trials? Because I can tell you, James' mandate really is not conventional wisdom. The Bible is not conventional wisdom. But how do we usually react to trials? Well, usually with dread, with anxiousness, with a sense of fear. But we are learning here a divine truth that our trials can be seen from a different perspective. If we will do this, if we will view them with the lenses of God, from God's perspective. You know, that's what we call the Christian worldview. It's not viewing the world and, and our lives and our circumstances through the, as we see them, as we would react, but we get to the lofty view of God himself who orchestrated it all, and we see these things through God's perspective. And when we do that, it will rid us of doubt and dread and disbelief if we can see things as God sees them. Matter of fact, right here in chapter 1, James warns us against this doubt. He said, but let a person ask in faith, not doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. He's tossed to and fro by every wind. And, and know this, this man will not receive anything from the Lord because he's unstable in all of his ways. So he's calling us to stay as people of faith. Three things about these trials. Let me move quickly. First, trials are predictable. They are predictable James says, count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. Not if, but when. And to affirm the, the vast predictability of these trials, notice who he addressed these let, this letter to. First, the 12 tribes of the dispersion, of the, uh, of the dysphoria, the, the Jews scattered abroad. But then he quickly goes on to, to use the term brother, actually 19 times uh, in the book of James, you'll find that term used. It's, it's referring to Gentile believers. And so here he's saying, Jew and Gentile alike, you're going to walk through trials and heartaches because regardless of race or religion or poverty or prosperity, no one will be exempt. And so under A, I'm saying they're unavoidable. Oh, believe me, there were plenty of struggles in this first century when James would write this uh, epistle Fears and threats, being ostracized. Do you realize in the first century, the average lifespan was about 35 years? Listen, it's just as Jesus declared, though. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And I love what Jesus did concluding the Sermon on the Mount. As he wraps it up and he gives this closing illustration, he talks to us about this man who would build his house on a foundation one built on the sand, one built on the rock. The guy who built on the sand was the guy, indeed, who heard the word but didn't use and flesh out the truth that he heard. But the man who built on, his, on the rock was the one who heard and did the word of God. But here's what I want you to notice with me. Each of these two men faced the same storm. The text says, suddenly rain fell, the river rose, the wind blew, and it was identical to those who built on the sand and those who built on the rock. But the one who built his house on the rock, guess what? 
It endured the storm. It wasn't swept away. And so we say, look, he is the rock of our salvation. And when difficulties and storms and trials come our way, we're going to stay anchored to him. You know, I'm convinced some of you here today have been getting rained on a lot. (laughs) There's been a lot of stuff in your life, a lot of trials that are out there. It's easy to get overwhelmed with these things. But Jesus gave us fair warning when he said, in this world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Albert Schweitzer, the famed missionary to Africa, distinguished himself both in medicine and missions. In an interview would say this, every man must bear his share of the world's suffering. It's ours to bear. What's Dr. Schweitzer saying? He's saying trials of life are unavoidable. So whether you face them or not is not to be decided. You're going to face them. But the question becomes, what will you do with them? Will they make you or break you? Will they make you a better person or will they make you a bitter person? Can they refine you? Will they refine you or can they be your ruin? And I'm simply telling you this as the Bible speaks to it today. You're not alone and your trials are unavoidable. But secondly, he says sometimes they're unexpected. Verse 2, look what it says. For those who fall into these various trials. Your translation may say experience. It's an interesting word in the Greek New Testament. It's the same word used in Luke chapter 10. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. And the man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell, it says, among thieves. And then they beat and they robbed him. They left him for dead until the Good Samaritan came along. The Greek word is actually where we get the the English word for pirate. Trial is that word perissimus. And just like a pirate would attack an unsuspecting ship, so it is with us oftentimes in our trials. Everything is going okay. And then suddenly when we least expect it, a bomb is dropped. All of a sudden we lose our job. All of a sudden we get a phone call in our our, our, our children are in trouble or they've, they've made a decision that breaks our hearts and, and, and someone we love leaves us or someone suddenly is gone and our world is upside down. How many times have you heard people say, I, I just didn't see it coming. I'm I, I, I just shocked. Right here out of the book of James, suddenly without warning, our world begins to look bleak. So while trials are unavoidable and unexpected, we can know this. We're not exempt. All of God's peoples have trials. They are predictable. But not only are they predictable, under Roman numeral 2, these trials are personal as well. James uses the word you. Count it all joy when you. Second person, plural, all of you is what he's saying. Because the trials indeed are universal. We've talked about that. But still, they're unique in the sense that we all don't deal with the same trials. They're unique to us. These trials have our own cell phone number on them. Some some people deal with some trials. We deal with other trials. Some are relational. Some are financial. Some are mental. Some are emotional. Some are physical. And some are spiritual. The Greek word used here for various is actually where we get the English word polka dot. And it can be translated multicolored. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible done in 250 B.C., 
The word that is used here in this text is the same word used to describe Joseph's coat. What was Joseph's coat? It was a multicolored coat. And that's what it's saying here. These trials are, are multicolored. They're unique. They're, they're personal. And what we're up against may be totally different than what other people are up against. They have our thumbprint on them. And we understand personally what we deal with. But collectively, they are all the same in the sense they can be used for our good in God's glory. So hear me this morning. Every trial that you can ever face, you can write over it permitted by the Father. And here's the way I like to understand this. While God may not will every situation, He has a will in every situation. Every circumstance, every heartache, every disappointment. While God's not arbitrarily sending you these things, still in these things, He has a will on how you should respond and, and, and exactly what's expected for us. We deal with things that are unique to us. Really, that's my story. My story in the sense that uh, when I was 16 years old, sophomore in high school, I was stricken with type 1 diabetes. And it, now for 52 years, has been the thorn in my flesh. I've dealt with this incurable disease and the multitude of complication that comes from its effect. Two weeks ago, Friday, notwithstanding, all of these heart issues I've dealt with are directly uh, a complication from dealing with type 1 diabetes. Compromises all your circulation system. But do I think God arbitrarily back in 1967 said, you know, I think I'm going to send Steve Dighton this chronic disease to deal with. I mean, after all, he's been getting a little out of line. That, kid, that kid's prideful. He, he doesn't seem to have any humility. He's getting independent. I don't believe that for a minute. And I don't believe God did that in your life either. But I know what he did do. He came to me in my time of need. And he began to work all of this out. And I'm standing here today as evidence of that truth. We know the verse. <laughs> we know chapter and verse. But God causes all things to work together for good to them who love God. For those who are called according to his purpose. Hey, listen, all things don't work together for good. But to us who are called of God, God will and delight in taking what's happened to us and certainly use them in our life. Can I tell you, God desires to do that personally in our lives. He'll take these trials. He'll take these problems. He'll take these pains. He'll use them radically to transform our life. And he will, through this, give us a future and a hope because he has plans not to harm us, not to destroy us, but to guide us in the way everlasting. And this is how we can count them all joy when we face various trials. Now let me qualify this. And simply say this. He's not saying that when difficulties of life, we're suddenly to get happy about it. Uh, he's not calling us to frolic to funerals, to go happily to the hospital, or sing hallelujah when our bank account goes to zero. I mean, that's goofy. That, that's weird. That's not what he's calling us to do at all. But here's what we can do by faith. We can say, Lord, I don't understand this or why I'm dealing with it, but I know who you are. I know your character. 
And I know you can take this and work it out for my eventual good and your own glory. Here's the key in understanding this clearly in the text. That word consider. Consider it all joy. It may say count in your translation. I think that's the King James there. It's an aorist tense middle voice word. Middle voice meaning it's up to us to do that. And and God calls us to take responsibility for that. But, but here, the aorist tense verb means this. The joy is going to come after the trial, not always during the trial. It's not joyful when we're dealing with these things. But in the midst of these challenges and trials of life, when all of this heaviness and hurtfulness, this present pain, we can find a resolve that the world knows not of because our God's going to take these matters and ultimately make us better for, the, for that experience, for this deep woe. And we see how this works. He goes on to tell us. So trials are predictable. They're personal. But, but I quit with this. These trials are productive as well. So James revealing to us how we can do the illogical, perhaps the unthinkable. We can have joy in the midst of our sorrow and our misery. He's actually calling us to lean into these trials because God will redeem our situation. But understand the process he uses and know this, in the process there is a purpose in mind. They're not random, as I said. They're not arbitrary. But here's what I know about God. You know it as well. He chooses to never waste a pain in our life. Here's the word he uses here. We can know. We can know this. Gnosko is the Greek word. We can have experiential knowledge in our life. It assures us God is at work. Taking and testing our faith, it will produce patience in us. Endurance, perseverance, long-suffering. And when we develop patience and perseverance, James says, then we're going to be perfect. Which doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect as you and I think about it. It's not somehow he's going to transform us into this realm of perfectionism. But the Greek word means mature, complete. We will lack nothing in our life. So how are you and I going to arrive at spiritual maturity if this is going to be the perfect that we're talking about here, the completion? Well, let me tell you this as a sidebar. It's not going to be in believing the prosperity gospel that says if you have enough faith, then you're not going to have problems, pains, or predicaments. Just believe it and it'll be so because that's not what the Word of God is saying at all. But we can, when we deal with these issues, we can be mature in a sense of being able to handle our trials, knowing that God's not through with us, that ultimately He'll be glorified in these things. Our good can happen out of it if we will persevere and endure in a focused faith, not in ourselves that we're able, but we do believe in the God who's able, our loving God. But can I tell you what you already know? Spiritual maturity always has bumps. There's no shortcuts. We have to be different. We've got to take the road less traveled because it takes discipline. It takes dealing with right way and adversity. It takes perseverance and prayer. 
We have to continue to feed and feast on the Word of God. And we continue to walk in faith. And God sees us through because He is the God who loves us and gave Himself for us. But here's what I'll tell you, and I think you'll agree with me. I've already, I've already talked about it in my own personal testimony. The things that I've learned most in life have been some of the hardest times of my life. Just the way it works. It wasn't when I was on top of the world. It wasn't when I got a big raise or when everything fell into place. Conversely, the things that I have learned is when things were tough, when I was defeated, when I was disappointed in a sense of desperation. And suddenly, guess what? I had a teachable spirit. And I'll bet your testimony is the same. I remember hearing this about Bobby Jones, arguably the greatest golfer of his era for sure. Won the U.S. Open four times. Won the British Open three times. Won the U.S. Amateur five times. I mean, the guy was incredible. Uh, uh, built uh, the Masters uh, golf course that we, 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 we watch here in April. But you know what Bobby Jones said? I never learned a thing in the matches I won. Oh, but what I learned in the matches I lost. And I'm telling you, that's the way it is in life. And so rather than seeing the things that are, are, are painful and the, the issues you weren't, wish you weren't dealing with, know this, God wants to, he wants to use those things. He wants to teach us those things. God uses these to get our attention oftentimes, to, to, to alert our sensitivity to the desperate needs of our lives. And that's what God seems to use. You know, I may be speaking to you this morning in your unique situation. It certainly has spoke to me in these past weeks in the trials that Mary and I have walked through. That we don't have to fret. We don't have to feel desperate. God's in control. And he's got a plan and a purpose as we deal with these things. We learn who he is by the love he's already demonstrated on a hill called Calvary. He loved us and gave himself for us, redeemed us in our sin and in our rebellion to set us free for whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. Today, do you know him, the power of his resurrection? Have you met him in the fellowship of his sufferings? Oftentimes, that's the route to living a spiritually mature life. I pray to that end for you and for me. Would you bow your heads with me today? All so often, we find ourselves, when difficulties come our way, to look around and try to do some kind of comparative analogy like, anybody else have to deal with this? It's just me? Or they never have any problems and I got all the problems? But I'm telling you, the answer is never in looking around. It's not even looking within to see what you can do to come up with some kind of resolve. But here's what the Bible is saying. We're going to have to look up. And have a look at our all-sufficient God who will take 
the trials of our life and make them triumphant because the obstacle is the way if we'll embrace it and we'll learn from it. Father, I pray today that all of us collectively could call upon you and stand on the promise that you're the God who is ever sufficient, who knows us in our deepest need. And you call us to not be weary in well-doing. Help us to be people who do not faint, who persevere and learn in this perseverance through our patience that we indeed could be mature people and lack nothing. I pray for those today who, who you may be speaking to who, who really have an emptiness in their soul because their faith is not authentic. It's a pretentious faith. But today you're shaking them and awaking them to the truth of real authentic faith begins in simple trust and faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. I pray if they're here today, they'd come and respond and they'd give their heart to you. So Lord, this is your invitation. We pray in faith, believing. Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If you'd like to come today, be prayed for, someone to pray with you about your situation, that'd be awesome. We've got counselors here at the front. I'll be here as well. We invite you to come as David leads us in this invitation hymn. Won't be here long. You come right now. While we sing, God calls. Be still, my soul.
cow is that a good song to conclude this message with thank you David he always he always does that and I love it because uh, he's he's working to do that we appreciate it don't we church amen before you get away today I want to make mention of uh, a, a trip that Mary and I are taking a Holy Land cruise that we will leave uh, on November 1st from Kansas City, fly to Rome and uh, see a lot of places. But Israel, of course, will be going to uh, tour Rome, of course, going to Ephesus and going to Corinth, going to Athens, going to the Greek island of Rhodes. We're going to uh, Syracuse and uh, a lot of other places. And uh, uh, so cruise ship, uh, the Royal Caribbean, Mary and I have taken four of these cruises uh, in, in groups of people. And so it's a pretty nice opportunity if you're free to go. Uh, and uh, so we, we've got some brochures. We'll give those to you before you get away. And uh, looking forward to being back with you. What about those chiefs? Hey, come on. <laughs> Hello. You can't see it, but I do have not only red tie, red shoestrings, and I. <laughs> our, our city is obviously in, in love with our team, and uh, we're 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 hoping it works out uh, for God's glory and our good <laughs> that we would we would win next week. But uh, anyhow, we'll suck it up and move forward if we don't. But uh, anyhow, it's been a pretty fun time to be a Chiefs fan. And uh, God bless you for being here today. We love you. And, uh, and, and thanks for being in God's house today. Free to go.